Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. There is much confusion about what politicians and the media are saying about who should get the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. Dr. Michelle Ananda Raja provides a very clear path through this contentious maze and puts our patient's safety and needs at the front and center of what we do. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. Dr. Anandaraja, please tell us about yourself. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm a uh, specialist in infectious diseases and general medicine. I work at the Alfred. Um, I've also got a research background, having done a PhD about um, seven years ago. And uh, my research interests include artificial intelligence, clinical leadership, as well as um, health services research. I have appointments with, as a statistical methods reviewer for JAMA Network Open, and um, I've been recently appointed uh, to the editorial team of BMJ Leader as well in order to, I guess, build better leaders for uh, the post-pandemic uh, recovery. Well, thank you, Michelle. Uh, now, considering the current situation in New South Wales, with the lockdown seemingly ineffective in crushing the numbers, and we're seeing quite a different pattern now with quite a few younger people becoming very sick and in ICU with the Delta variant. What are the main issues and what are your recommendations when it comes to choosing a safe and effective vaccine? So um, thank you, David. I think um, at the moment, you know, Sydney uh, is on uh, a bit of a knife edge. Uh, the numbers are clearly not coming down with the current um, public health orders. But I just think that everyone needs to, you know, put this into perspective that Victoria had a second wave, which was far, far worse than what Sydney is going through at the moment. Uh, case numbers peaked at 725 a day in August. And then we went through a 112 day hard lockdown um, in order to drive that back to um, zero. What I'm hearing in Sydney is that the public health orders have been somewhat um, more relaxed, I think, than the than what Victorians have experienced. Mm -hmm. And I think that this has led to a bit of confusion in the minds of the community. So for example, non-essential retail remains open, you can whip down to the shops to buy a pair of shoes, for example. Mm. Um, there's been, you know, a more less stringent restrictions on the on social mis mixing, for example, people have not necessarily been confined to within five kilometers of their local um, government area or their homes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's still a suite of measures that can be actually instituted in order to try and bring this under control. And I don't think the government has triggered all of them yet. Mm -hmm. So I still think that there's room to move in terms of triggering those additional measures. The problem is that, you know, these things should generally speaking be triggered at the very beginning rather than two weeks into an outbreak. As you know, with the Delta variant, you're um, trying to chase an accelerating train. So. I would say to um, the, the GPs listening to this that, you know, things might get worse before they get better again. 
And uh, you would certainly expect to see more cases over the next few days before you start to see an improvement. And again, a lot depends on the community. Now, this is, you know, and this is where GPs have a massive role to play, particularly um, GPs working with people from communities of color, um, where, you know, you are the most trusted voices and mm -hmm. they will listen to you. And it's imperative that we minimize social mixing. It has to really be, you know, almost eliminated unless it's absolutely essential because we catch this virus from each other and movement has to be also curtailed. Um, so, you know, a mask wearing, of course, completely, uh, yeah, indoors is important. Um, and the other thing to say to people is that, uh, you know, this is carried through the air and it's important that you ventilate, you keep your rooms, your homes ventilated, even in winter, occasionally <laughs> open the windows and air the house out, you know? Um, so there are simple things that can still be done to drive those numbers down. With respect to the vaccine advice, there has been no official change in the vaccine advice, okay? So the ATAGI, our you know, vaccine experts, mm -hmm. as you know, on the 8th of April, raised the age cutoff <coughs> to 50 years, and uh, that was in response to a case of TTS in a, uh, gentleman, a man in his 40s who was a healthcare worker and had quite a severe case, actually. This was subsequently published in the MJA, and this gentleman underwent um, two bowel resections because he infarcted his bowel, uh, ended up with short gut syndrome and all kinds of other problems, and actually had a um, treatment-resistant clot. So he had clot progression despite anticoagulation. And it's worth reading the report just to get a sense of the illness severity because, it's, unfortunately, we we've really not heard enough about the local cases apart from this one case report. So, you know, I would urge you to read it. It's, it's quite um, enlightening. Then on the, the 17th of June, there was another change to the policy, as you know, the age threshold for access um, to the AstraZeneca vaccine was raised to 60, yes? Mm -hmm. And then on the 29th of June, which was only about a week or so ago, um, the prime minister, unilaterally made an announcement that um, the AstraZeneca dose was vaccine was available to anyone under the age of 60 under uh, this notion of informed consent. And this really blindsided um, the medical community, mm -hmm. took the AMA off guard, and the AMA fortunately um, came out with a pretty unequivocal statement the next day and cleared up that misunderstanding and basically reinforced that the health advice had not had not changed. Subsequent to that, the chair coach, one of the co-chairs of ATAGI, Chris Blythe, actually appeared on radio and um, reinforced that message that the health advice had not changed. And with respect to um, when he was actually, um, you know, queried, pressed about giving the AstraZeneca vaccine to a person under the age of 60, his response was to the effect that it, there really had to be a pressing reason to do so or a compelling reason to do so. Um, and he was very clear on that. So, you know, um, unfortunately, the statement by the Prime Minister raised a lot of confusion in the community. And, um, and I think that that still persists. And it's really put GPs in a difficult spot um, because, you know, people struggle to assess risk. With respect to this issue of risk, risk, I think, has been misunderstood by um, the community and by us. And it's, it's difficult for the community to understand what risk means when we don't know what risk means. So in general, um, 
people don't understand when it when you present data as percentages okay if you say 10% people honestly a lot of people don't understand what that means it's better to translate that to frequencies one in 10 for example so make sure you use the simplest language possible and you change it into frequencies rather than percentages so that's that's an important message the second is that risk is actually a combination of a couple of factors one is likelihood the likelihood of an event occurring and the second is the impact of that event and the impact um, obviously can vary right from low mm -hmm. medium to high or even catastrophic so the thing about tts is that the focus of the discussion in the media and even amongst a lot of experts and even non-experts, and this has been part of the problem, mm -hmm. has been really on likelihood, right? That we've focused on how rare this is without actually discussing the impact. And the likelihood is low. There's no question about that, right? But mm -hmm. the impact is not low. The impact that individual is, um, med is, is high, sometimes catastrophic, but mm -hmm. certainly not low. And, and when you use a matrix um, with likelihood down one side and uh, impact on the other, um, and you can you know, look at these on the internet, there are a dime a dozen a risk matrix, um, mm -hmm. you'll see that risk actually falls in the medium, at least medium, sometimes medium to high, depending on what you're talking about. So when you think of it in those terms, it suddenly makes sense as to why there is in many quarters um, vaccine hesitancy, because some people perceive this as not actually being low risk, but of, you know, higher than low risk, medium to high risk to them. Having said that, though, there's a lot of people who have taken up the AstraZeneca vaccine over the age of 60, mm -hmm. and that's fine, but there are still people who have held out. And, um, you know, my advice is that, unfortunately, this conversation has turned into a bit of a war. Uh, there is a lot of heat in this argument, mm -hmm. and I think we need to take that heat out of this and, and really just you know, emphasize that this is a conversation between a patient and their doctor and really no one else. No one else gets involved here. And people need to block out that noise and block out the media and all the other commentators who are essentially berating people, I think, for, um, you know, holding back. When in actual fact, the general public, without actually articulating it, have figured out what risk means to them. And some people take no time they don't think twice about getting vaccinated other people um, will take time and there's no right and wrong here there is a spectrum okay and our job as doctors is to um, ensure we support our patients we have open and respectful conversations with them that's the most important thing and um, you know we don't coerce people we never do that because in the end as you know if you lose trust the trust of your patient then as a doctor we are worth absolutely nothing I think it's incredibly important that um, those tenants are adhered to. So, David, with respect to actual, I guess, numbers, we can talk a little bit about the numbers. They do jump around. I would draw your attention to the weekly ATAGI reports. I think because mm -hmm. you're constantly going to be talking to patients about risk and TTS and, you know, these, these others, any other side effects. It's not just TTS. People are sometimes concerned about other side effects that they may have heard about on the grapevine. Mm -hmm. It's imperative to read the weekly ATAGI report. Um, it's available online. And then that hyperlinks to the TGA report. It's a, it's a short read, takes a couple of minutes because the numbers keep getting updated every week. And then the other document I would um, consider, suggest you read also, 
is the UK um, MHRA yellow card reporting system. Okay, and if you just Google that, you'll, you'll come up with straight away with the report. Um, and you can read through and get a sense of what the numbers are doing because the numbers are evolving. They are not static, they are changing. The incidence is getting higher every week. For example, the most recent MHRA report that was released uh, last no, June 23rd, it might be for this reporting period, mm -hmm. has shown that there are say 395 TTS cases, mortality rate of 18% um, in people who have had close to 45 do million doses of AstraZeneca. Mm -hmm. That equates to an incidence of 15 per million, which translates to one in 67,000. Now, once upon a time, it was actually one in 250,000, right? right? But every week, the numbers get smaller and smaller. However, there's a clear difference in age so in the people, this is from UK data, 18 to 49 years old, the incidence is 20 per million. In people over 50 years or over, it is 11 per million. So it's double the rate in young people. When you look at, when I looked last week at the data before I did Quanda, in people under the age of 60 of those, at the time it was 389 cases, it's now 395. Mm -hmm. um, I found that 68% of the, total was actually occurring in people under the age of 60. So um, it is more common in younger people, all right? Yep. With respect to the second dose, um, there's, it, there's really no point looking at the Australian data. It's, you know, the numbers we've given are trivial, 400,000 second doses or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the UK, they've given um, a lot more second doses um, mm -hmm. and they've seen 34 cases with an overall incidence of 1.6 per million for the second dose. But again, these numbers change, right? So mm -hmm. it's important, um, you know, if you're truly giving informed consent, you've got to stay up to date with the, the, the facts and figures. With respect to the Australian data, we've had, uh, I looked at this yesterday, the TGA report, and there were 76 cases of TTS. Mm -hmm. And the, the nice thing about the Australian data is that they actually break it up into age bands, okay? So for every decade, um, they've got an incidence. Now, because the numbers are much smaller, there's going to be a lot more imprecision around those mm -hmm. um, figures, if that makes sense. Yep. Um, but basically, rule of thumb was, I'm just trying to think, for the people over the age of 60, the incidence looked like it was somewhere in the order of around 1 in 50,000. Whereas in people under the age of 60, it's one in 33,000, thereabouts. Yeah. When you look at, you know, and I, I did mention this on Q&A um, last week that, you know, we don't really know what the true incidence is in younger people, okay, people under the age of 60. And that's mainly because a lot of countries suspended the use of AstraZeneca when the signal appeared in this younger age group. And for example, in Norway, the incidence was one in 26,000 before they suspended it. In Denmark, one in 40,000. Canada, one in 55,000. So looking, putting it all together, I think that the incidence in, in younger people between um, you know, 16 to, to 60, uh, but certainly 60 to you know, 20 to say 40, thereabouts, young adults, is probably in the order of one in 20 to one in 30,000. That's what I think it's going to be. Okay. Um, now, on its own, that number to any individual patient sitting in front of you is going to be trivial. They're just going to dismiss it because, you know, they'll think you're overreacting. Yep. The issue, though, becomes that when you vaccinate at scale, you're going to start seeing these cases. And I'm not sure how many GPs are actually 
in the program. David, do you know, is it about 5,000 or? I can't, not off the top of my head, I'm sorry. So I'm, I'm just going to pull a number out of my, I'm just not sure what the number is. I, I think it might be 5,000 GPs. So if we had 5,000 GPs online um, vaccinating, then they would only need to vaccinate four young people a day each, All right? That's a trivial number for a GP practice. And, and you would then hit 20,000 you know, young people being vaccinated a day and you will start to see cases and we'll start to see one to two cases per day if that kept going. Right. right. Now, when you think of it that way, then by the end of, you know, one week, you might have seven to 14 young people with this, with this complication. And the problem then is that in young people, the outcomes are much worse. Right. <laughs> so a target zone data is showing us that it's close to 25%, maybe 30% are ending up in ICU. And when you look actually at, um, you know, and, and these people are getting what are called tier one clots, which are clots either in the brain or mm -hmm. in the abdomen, in the splenic um, circulation, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, when we, th there's been a lot of discussion about how great we are at treating these. The reality is this, this syndrome has been around for three months. You know, we're still learning how to treat this. And when you read the first report from Australia, it's pretty clear that there were some pretty significant challenges in treating this, all right? Particularly around um, anticoagulation. You know, so you have to use synthetic anticoagulants. You need specialist hematologists. Um, mm -hmm. And it could still end up be being um, clot resistant, okay? Um, anticoagulation resistant. So you can get clot progression despite anticoagulation. And that's a disaster. In young people, CVST is not, I mean, in, in anyone, it's not trivial, but the problem um, is also hemorrhagic conversion, transformation. Mm -hmm. So these people um, can bleed. And in fact, mortality is highest in those people who do have CVST. And if you look at the New England Journal case reports from Germany and Norway, um, the published uh, mortality rate, and this was, don't forget, this was predominantly women, predominantly young, a lot of healthcare workers, a lot of nurses, right? Mm -hmm. These were the first reports that were published, and the mortality rate was in the order of fifty-five to sixty percent. That's huge, That's significant. So, what what we're not being told is the degree of harm. Now, it was discussed uh, in Senate estimates by um, Chris Blythe, who is a co-chair of ATAGI. He also mentioned it in a radio interview. But you know, the, it's not just the mortality; it's also the morbidity. So, these people will effectively have strokes if they do survive. And if they have a stroke, we all know that the outcome is never good, okay? Mm -hmm. So this is not, you know, this sort of information, this level of detail obviously is, you know, has not been discussed in public, right? And I think, you know, I wrote an op-ed in the Australian on, I think it was the 28th of May, where I talked about, um, you know, lived experience. I talked about patient autonomy. I talked about choice and, and I did, you know, mention the fact that I think it's a mistake that ATAGI have not released the details of these cases, because I think, you know, in, in the medical community, the best way we learn is we discuss cases as you would at Grand Rounds, for example, or at yes. conferences or at, you know, your CME um, uh, events. And that hasn't happened at all. It's known to, you know, a few select committees and that's it. Um, and I think that that is a huge mistake because there's a lot of confusion in the community um, mm -hmm. and there's a sense that this is all a storm in a teacup when it isn't. So when, you know, Jeanette Young, um, you know, came out and with her impassioned plea that she was not going to be 
um, endorsing giving this vaccine to young people, she was um, vilified, right, by certain sectors of the media and uh, and other commentators. And the reality is, she probably knows things that we don't know, <laughs> and she's hundred percent aware of of the severity of this condition. And you know, it becomes a real issue when you have you know, 1.2 million young people in Queensland, for example, and negligible COVID transmission. So they, are, we, are we happy to let these people, you know, become either die or become disabled uh, when that, that's not likely to happen with COVID? All right. So I'm going to give you some, I'm going to read out some figures. I think this is a good segue into going into mortality because mm-hmm. I'm hoping you've all got pens and papers out because um, you will need this data may be useful in discussing mortality risk, okay, related to COVID. So I calculated these figures based on Department of Health data from Australia, all of Australia, and calculated the mortality rate. And I'm going to read out um, the numbers and, um, you know, it'll clearly show that mortality increments with age, but it really sort of kicks up um, from the 60 age um, band. So. In 18 to 29 year olds, the mortality risk or otherwise known as the case fatality um, rate is 0.01%. What does that mean? That's one hundredth of 1%. In the 30 to 39 year olds, the mortality rate is 0.04%. That's four one hundredths of 1%. It is an infinitesimally small number, right? Mm -hmm. So for a young person, at least based on Australian data that we currently have, the risk of dying is very, very low. And this is from COVID-19, right? COVID, absolutely. Australian data. Mm-hmm. In the 40 to 49 age group, the rate is 0.05%. 50 to 59, 0.42%. 60 to 69, 1.5%. Right. So crack the 1% you know, barrier. Um, in the 70 to 79-year-olds, it's 9.4%. In the 80 wow. to 89-year-olds, it's 30%. And in the 90-plus-year-olds, it's 40%. So, so those are, you know, some useful numbers you can use. And I didn't read that out in Quanda. Obviously, there's just a limited amount of things you can say in that slot. But, um, you know, when you're trying to talk to people, I think it's important to sort of bring, bring up the fact that, okay, you're a young person, you're age 30, I understand that you want to have the AstraZeneca vaccine for all these reasons, um, but your risk of dying from COVID, should you get it, is infinitesimally small. It's 400s of 1%. Now, um, the Delta variant does appear to be a bit more virulent. Um, this is based on some data that has come out in a preprint from Canada, just published by David um, Fishman. It's not past peer review. And it suggests that um, hospitalization, the odds of hospitalization is about um, uh, 1.5 um, or a half um, uh, 0.5 higher, so a little bit higher than, than the alpha variant. And the risk of ICU is about double. Now that's in a surge scenario, okay? Mm-hmm. And that was based on data from the first half of this year, February to June, about 216,000 on hospitalizations. So it may be associated, maybe a little bit more virulent, um, but it certainly is more contagious. It will infect at least five to six, maybe five to seven um, additional people, which is why we're seeing these outbreaks. The other thing to talk about with uh, with um, young people is, is the fact the dosing, okay? Now I know uh, Delta is, you know, um, an issue in Sydney and it has changed the risk matrix, but the reality is that 
one dose of either AstraZeneca or Pfizer is just not enough to knock out the Delta variant. You need <laughs> two doses. So for symptomatic infection, the AstraZeneca and Pfizer are both with one dose, um, 33% effective in preventing symptomatic infection. And that's based on data from Public Health England. Mm -hmm. You have two doses, and this is preliminary data. Um, the AstraZeneca is 60% effective versus 92% effective for Pfizer, okay, mm -hmm. um, in preventing symptomatic infection. Now, there's some, you know, imposition around that data. The AstraZeneca may be as good as 77% based on the confidence intervals. With respect to hospitalization, it's pretty evident that you do need two doses in order to neutralize the Delta variant. So for AstraZeneca, mm -hmm. um, it is one dose is 71% um, effective in preventing hospitalization. One dose of Pfizer, 94% effective in preventing hospitalization. Whereas two doses come bring it up to equivalence. For AstraZeneca, 92% for Pfizer, 96%. Mm -hmm. So you do need the two doses, right, to get the maximum benefit against the Delta variant. One dose is not going to be enough to neutralize it. The issue here, of course, is that we still have a 12-month, a 12-week interval between the first dose and the second dose of AstraZeneca. So even if a young person got the AstraZeneca vaccine now, even an older person, if they got it now, they're not going to get their uh, next dose for another 12 weeks based on Atagi data uh, and Atagi, the Atagi statement. Now, the Prime Minister may have said that he thinks, you know, you can, uh, it's appropriate to shorten it to eight weeks. Now, this was a somewhat, I think, irresponsible comment because it wasn't actually endorsed by Atagi. What has happened in the UK is on the 14th of May, the UK changed its recommendation and shortened the dosing interval to eight weeks. And they did that in response to a surge in del the Delta variant because they wanted <laughs> to prevent hospitalizations. Okay, and you remember you need two doses to prevent hospitalization. So that's that was a the rationale there. Um, the issue though, is that the original trial data that was published um, in The Lancet in February, right, mm -hmm. AstraZeneca, uh, they did a post-hoc analysis where they, they demonstrated why a 12-week interval is better. And this was based on a subgroup of patients from the main clinical trials. So they looked at around somewhere between 2,000 and 2,600 patients, okay, in each cohort that I'm going to talk about. And what they found is that in the group who had a uh, the two shots 12 weeks apart or more, 12 weeks apart or more, mm -hmm. the vaccine efficacy was 81%. And then they, when they looked at um, another cohort who had had the vaccine between six and eight weeks apart, the vaccine efficacy was 60%. Right. Right. And so it was based, and, and there was clearly a gradation. You could see that, you know, if you gave it within, you know, less than six weeks or six to eight weeks or a little bit longer, and then finally 12 weeks or more, it keeps incrementing. And, um, and so it was based on that data that they decided to stretch out the first and the second dose to 12 weeks. Now yeah. it, is, it is called a post hoc analysis mm -hmm. because obviously it's done after the main study. It's a subgroup analysis. It's, and, and even in the table, table one of that paper by Boise et al um, in Lancet, it basically is regarded as an exploratory analysis. Okay, and that's mm -hmm. what they call it. And, the problem with these is that these, this is the weakest form of data in some ways. It's, um, it's best at, at asking a question rather than answering a question. 
because it tends to be select data. It's not the whole clinical trial mm -hmm. and can be biased, all right? But this is, this is how this 12 weeks came about. So, so you know, there's a trade-off here. When the prime minister gets on national TV and talks about shortening the interval to eight weeks, the trade-off is that you may lose vaccine efficacy. Mm -hmm. right? You probably will, actually. Um, and because, you know, we're not in this sort of uncontrolled community transmission sort of scenario, mm -hmm. that is an issue. Yep. Okay? Um, and, and I think that's why we haven't had Atagi come out and change their statement. And there's no mention of that state in that statement of actually um, changing the dosing interval. And I checked with an Atagi member who will remain nameless. And basically um, that person... Uh, agreed that there was no change to the health advice and the dosing interval remains at 12 weeks. When you, when you go chopping and changing, the other thing is it raises more confusion in the community. Like there's been a lot of changes with the AstraZeneca rollout. And uh, I think it's, you know, and I, I think also there's been a loss of trust as well in the community around this um, with respect to TTS and other complications and whatever. And it, it can just further destabilize the program. Um, and, and then one final thing, and this is probably just something, you know, that we should just be aware of, is that when you're rolling out a national campaign, which is already, you know, a little bit on the shaky side, right, mm -hmm. for lots of reasons, um, if there is, you know, a catastrophic when, it's not if, but when there is a catastrophic event in a young person, like a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old, whatever, it can, it can be the final blow to a program, right? So that is a risk not only at an individual level but at a programmatic level and um you know it's just something that we all need to be mindful of it's probably something more for the policymakers to keep in mind and it may have been a factor in the decision making we don't know so i think that sort of covers the main points david the the other thing also to keep in mind with young people is that the uk started their campaign in on the 4th of december right 2020 Mm -hmm. And they only started inviting 30-year-olds um, in oh, start of June, okay? and that was seven months into the campaign in an uncontrolled setting of uncontrolled community transmission. So young people have had to wait. They've had to wait their turn until everyone else got vaccinated before they were given the vaccine. And so this is what I talked about in Q&A, that you know, they will be, in a few weeks from now, we're going to be getting more Pfizer, right, probably in two weeks. Government have said they've finally got some more definitive numbers on, on what the weekly amount is. Now, I suspect a lot of that is going to get sucked up um, vaccinating the 1As and 1Bs that haven't been, you know, fully vaccinated yet, the disability sector, aged care workers, and so on, um, you know, still haven't been done. I don't know if all the essential workers like paramedics have been done. I don't think they have. And certainly we haven't finished vaccinating our Indigenous communities. So they will need to get done. And I suspect that stock will, will go to them, as it should, right? As mm -hmm. it should. And then after that, hopefully come September and certainly October, um, we will have a lot more vaccine at our disposal. When you look at this Horizons document, which I've got in front of me, um, in, let's see, September, they're predicting up to 1.3 million Pfizer per week and Moderna up to 125,000 Moderna per week. And that's just for the month of September. And then come October, December, Pfizer goes up to 2.3 million per week, Moderna up to 615,000 per week. So, you know, there'll be an absolute glut by the end of the year. And it'll be 
you know, at that point, we, we will need all hands on deck, you know, to get the community vaccinated. Problem, right, and I did raise this in Q&As, the problem is that we actually need these vaccines now. Um, this is why, you know, we need to apply as much pressure as we can, as best we can, either through our colleges or through writing to our local members. And believe me, your, your parliamentarians are, you know, eager to hear from you. May, I know you're all busy and you don't have time, but if they heard from the grassroots, right, um, as to, you know, what your clinical need was, um, then I think it would actually help push things in the right direction. Um, because what we need is, you know, we need the government to um, negotiate with as many countries as possible, particularly the US, who are releasing their vaccine glut. And, you know, even on the weekend, I read in Reuters that the, that they have, they're releasing millions of doses of Moderna to Guatemala, you know, mm -hmm. and that Israel was about to throw out 700,000 doses of Pfizer because it was about to expire. And instead, what they did was they've uh, swapped it with South Korea. South Korea are using it now. And um, they will, uh, South Korea later in the year, will give these Israelis um, another 700,000 back. So, you know, you've got to do some negotiating. We've got to do some horse trading. And... And, um, you know, we, we need, we basically need more Pfizer. And with respect to AstraZeneca, I mean, I think that if, if, if there was an absolute, you know, if there was a compelling reason to give it to a young person, then the most important thing that you do is you do, in, you do consent them properly, help them understand. And, um, and really, you do need to document what the, the reasons are, because it, hopefully nothing will happen and the chances are nothing will happen. But if something did happen, then, you know, there is, um, there's going to be family who are going to be asking questions as to why as a GP, you went against the official health mm -hmm. advice. Michelle, you've given us a lot of very powerful and important information. I'm just going to try to see if I can try and just suck out the guts of it. The, the first thing you really did say to us is that, it is important not just to look at, if you like, the rare risks of getting the complications from the vaccine. What has been missing in conversation are the actual risks to the person or persons who suffer the complications. And they can be not just mild, they can be catastrophic. Yeah. For their lives, it could change or in fact lose their lives completely. The second thing is that you did ask us to look at it, not just only in age groups, or if you like the death from COVID-19 in age groups. And it is very clear that the younger groups have significantly lower risks of dying from COVID-19. Yep. The third thing you ask us to also understand is the scenario in which the various recommendations were changed from the study and that was in the midst of a surge in the UK. Um, and that's when they pushed ahead with shortening the duration of the doses. What you say is that really in Australia, we need to have our patients really understand not just the risk of TTS, but the risks of themselves becoming sick. Uh, mm -hmm. And to do that, GPs need to know the true figures and you've alerted us to look at the Atagi website. And I would hope you can send us the link so we can have a look at that. So it's the weekly Atagi report. We need to understand those numbers so we can have a good informed consent with any patient who asks for it, who's under 60. 
And you're really saying we should document the reason why they find it so compelling in our discussion so that if anything happens, we can defend our position. Yes, I think that's important. Yeah. I think given, given the fact that Atagi, you know, have come out and the co-chairs um, come out and said that, um, you know, there really needs to be a pressing reason, then I think that pressing reason needs to be documented. And there may be valid reasons. You know, there may be a young person who just has such mental health issues surrounding this that they they want to have it done okay fine that documented you know but otherwise uh it you know unless the health advice changes i think it's it's yeah i think there's a and also the dosing you know one dose is not going to do anything oh that's right either vaccine what we desperately need now is more pfizer we badly need it we need pfizer and we need two shots we need two shots, Pfizer, and we also need people to adhere to the public health orders. And I think this is where GPs can have a really strong voice, particularly within um, their communities of colour. You know, um, yes. these people, you are the voice and uh, people will listen to you. They'll listen to you probably more than they will to, you know, a politician. And I'm afraid, you know, recently there's been a lot of... Um if you like, a sense of being targeted just because you're coloured or living in a suburb that is poorer. Yeah, I think that this actually has been really badly handled um, by the New South Wales government. I mean, you know, having just gone through this in Victoria, we brought it under control. You know, it took us two weeks, and but we did it. Um, and it was anxiety-inducing for the first week or so, but then the numbers started to come down. And what they did was they, they, did, they went hard from the very beginning and they crushed it. So the problem I'm hearing in New South Wales is people are getting mixed messages. Like it's, you know, why, why make it um, easy for people to do the wrong thing? You know, wandering out, out to the shops to pick up a dress or a pair of shoes or because they're bored, right? Why do that? The, the smarter thing to do is to just shut down retail. Yep. Um, that's not essential. And it, removes that temptation altogether, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I do get the feeling that there's a lot of politics here and I'm afraid, I, I love to remember who told me this. Uh, he said something like, nature creates viruses, uh, politicians create pandemics. Yes, that was Bill Battelle. He's That's written a right. book about it. It's very good. Yes, I, I really appreciate that. Um, it's it's incredibly important we make right decisions. Michelle, I really thank you for giving us a heads up. Now, before we leave, can you just, for the sake of our listener, state the Atagi advice for the use of Pfizer in terms of age group and duration between first and second shots? So at the present time, um, the health advice hasn't changed. The Pfizer vaccine is still preferred for people under the age of 60. Now there is a you know, 0.3 is the recommendation around, um, you know, providing AstraZeneca under informed consent, but it's further down the recommendation list. And I think it was really a caveat for those situations where there may be a surge and risk balance changes. Now, I would really wanna hear that being announced from a target um, before, you know, interpreting that recommendation as, uh, over, you know, uh, uh, kind of opening the floodgates. I, I think that's there in the event that, um, you know, we have a search scenario and we simply don't have any other op options up our sleeve. But that's not how I see it. I see this point three with point one very clearly stating that the Pfizer vaccine is preferred for under 60s. 
And beyond and, that, um, the dosing interval has not changed. It's still recommended at 12 weeks. Good. I would say right. one final thing is obviously things are evolving, but I always look to the health advice. Um, I think you have to be careful interpreting what politicians um, are saying. They, you know, they have different agendas to what doctors have. Our only agenda, our only agenda, is to care for our patients, <laughs> whereas politicians have other other agendas operating. You have mentioned a couple of websites where we should be going to. As I had already asked you, if you can send me the links, I will attach it to the podcast. I, I would suggest reading, I'll send it to you, suggesting reading just to reiterate. I think these are important and they're very useful documents. Um, the Atagi weekly statement, um, that usually has a hyperlink attached to it to the TGA list of adverse events, which goes into other things. We've had three deaths, two from TTS in people under the age of 60. We've also had a recent death in the last week of a 61-year-old woman who died of uh, refractory ITP. Um, it also talks about Guillain-Barre and it talks about myocarditis, so that's important. And I would highly recommend reading the um, UK MHRA yellow card reporting syndrome. I, I usually skip the first half of it and I go straight down to TTS. I read about myocarditis, which by the way is present both with AstraZeneca and Pfizer. It's not just a Pfizer problem. Um, and the risk is, is tiny. It's in the order of for AstraZeneca. When I last looked at it a week ago, three per million. Um, no, Pfizer was three per, per million and AstraZeneca 2.6 per million. So it's, it's the same, but it's a very, very low. A lot of people don't know about that. And I think that's a mistake because we have had people present to the emergency department with chest pain and subsequently diagnosed with pericarditis or myocarditis. So it is something, um, you know, to keep in mind. And GPs might want to mention that um, to, you know, their patients when they're um, when they're consenting them. So worth reading those those three documents. Michelle, I do thank you for your time and for this very helpful information in a time of confusion. Pleasure, David. Pleasure. Let's. Uh, I think important for the medical profession um, to hold the line on this and um, you know lock in. Yes, and and thank you for just giving us a path to stick onto and not be distracted by noise. I agree with that. Thank you. Bye-bye, Michelle. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.